0: Well, this morning, I've been given the honor to preach for 10 minutes on the subject of the new birth. This life that we've received in Christ Jesus, if you could all turn with me to John 3 verses 1 through 8. Let me tell you guys what a a privilege it is to be a member of this congregation and to gather together to worship God with you guys. And to have the opportunity to bring his word before you guys. Please follow along as I read. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It becomes very clear from reading this passage that the new birth is of fundamental importance. Christ says to Nicodemus, um, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If this doesn't describe you, if you haven't received this, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So what is the new birth? The new birth or being born again, it refers to the change that God causes in us into the salvation that he brings in our life. Ezekiel 36, uh, chapter 36, verses 25 through 27 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will put I will give you a heart of, of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what God works in us. When you are born again, your citizenship changes Just like in this world, when you're born, you're given citizenship in the country that you're born in. Well, when you're born into this world, you're also given citizenship to the kingdom of this world that is under Satan. But when you are born again, you're given citizenship to the kingdom of God. You no longer belong to this kingdom to serve its ways and to prosper where it prospers and to feed off of its evil. But you're given citizenship to a new world, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, to live for its glory. And do not be confused like Nicodemus was. This new birth is not a physical thing. It is a thing of the spirit. Nicodemus wonders, how can a man be born when he is old? He is so used to seeing righteousness as something you do in your flesh, as circumcision, as a sign of you belonging to the kingdom of God. But Jesus tells him, this is of the spirit. This is of your heart. The new birth is the only true way. It is the only way to the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes a point of emphasizing this by twice saying, truly, truly, I say to you. This isn't extra words or a fancy way of speaking. This is because what he says after this is of such vital importance that he wants the, the listener to hear that and prepare his heart before he says the truth. That unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is the only true way. It is definitive. Like with a normal birth, you definitely belong to your mother. There's no question of whether or not you are their child. And so there is no question. You are either in the kingdom or you are not in the kingdom. You are either born again or not born again. And this is not a status that you fall in and out of. This is a change that happens and this is a new life you're given. It is mysterious and it is not of you. At the end, Jesus explains using an analogy. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We hear the effects of the wind. We see it moving things, but we cannot tell where it starts or where it ends. The same thing is with the Spirit that moves in us to create a new birth. God places it on who He places it. And it is not a checklist or a Action That we can place and make happen But rather something that God makes happen And we experience And so If you are in a new kingdom Your life will change If If you are no longer born of the flesh But born of the spirit Your life will change This is something that you must be sure of And this is something that will surely happen to you. If this doesn't happen, then you are truly not born again. And to be born into this new kingdom, you cannot belong to the kingdom that is at war with it. So you must die to that kingdom. And you have died to that kingdom so that you have a new life. And you must live in reliance on God The flesh subsists off of food and off of the things of this world, but the spirit lives off of the word of God and off of this, off of his life. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so for this change, we should live with a thankful heart. For God has done what we were powerless to do. The law shows that one cannot enter the kingdom of God by his own righteousness. But in the new birth, God allows you to enter it. Not of you, but all of him. We should live a life of repentance. We should stop looking back to to the old life we had, but to the new one we have. And we should put our lot with the kingdom that we belong in. And to those here who haven't experienced a new birth, who don't believe in our Savior, this is a solemn warning that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom that you belong to will be cast off and destroyed and you along with it. Give thanks to the God who has given us new life, new citizenship, and a new birth.
1: A new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You've heard it the phrase many times, born again. We just heard from just somebody piggybacking on what he said basically as well. The word born again or the phrase born again, sometimes we don't understand fully what it means. I'd like you to think of it in a way that Jesus meant it in John 3 3 as well. When he says, truly, truly, he tells us, unless one is born from, uh, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born from above, the word can mean above. It literally means from another. But in the context it's usually used is above. Unless one is born from heaven, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So think of it being born again as born from above. It has to be something that comes from down from heaven. He cannot see the kingdom of God, not only to go to heaven when you die, but you cannot perceive the kingdom of God now unless you're born from above. To see it, to perceive it. We when we're born from above, we view things differently. We see things differently, even though we are still imperfect. We have a different perspective. So what does it mean to be a new creation, which this passage relates to? Our view of man changes, our view of mankind, our view of God changes, our view of Christ. So what I'd like to do is take a second to tell you that if you've been born from above, this is what happened to you. And if you've not been born from above, this is what can happen and we hope will happen to you as well. Um, the, the verse previous I'm going to read to you, it's not up here, but verse 16 says, Paul said, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we regard him thus no longer. When we're not, before we were born from above, we saw men according to flesh. What it means is we look at people according to how much money they have or the culture they're from or we view them by their knowledge or their education or their outward appearances and externals. And Jesus told us, don't judge by externals, but make righteous judgments. But when we, that's according to the flesh, Paul's even maybe saying that there was a time when he regarded Christ according to the flesh before he was born from above. He, he saw Christ as a fraud. He saw him as a false messiah. He saw him as a deceiving teacher. He was out to destroy Christians, remember? He saw Jesus according to the flesh. He held the coats of those who would stone Stephen. But he says, but I regard him thus no longer because Paul's been born from above. He believed in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit regenerated him and gave him life. So back to verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. What does it mean to be a new creation? The first, first of all, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says we have the mind of Christ. When someone is born again, born from above, born from heaven, we have the mind of Christ. Now that doesn't mean we know everything. We know everything that God knows, obviously. But we have the mind of Christ. We view things like Christ. We have his perspective. We have his values now about what's important. What did Jesus think was important? Read the Gospels, right? Eternity, heaven, store treasure, heaven. He never talked about putting much faith in this world or any faith in this world below, did he? But we do, off often, which is a mistake as believers. We have his perspectives. We don't look at externals as now so to judge. He said he looks on the minds and the hearts and the thoughts and he he judges the motives of men. So, therefore, we also have that same mind. He says, and I'd like to do just a quick word study on some of these words, just brief, just to give you a little different taste of them. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The word new there doesn't mean new like 2020 or a brand new car. The word new means a new quality. It means something fresh, unused. Because we're the same person in our bodies, right? But we're new creation. We have a fresh, a freshness to us because we've been born from above. It's a new, uh, a new freshness and a superior quality than the old man. He says a new creation. Creation literally can mean something that's um, out of its, it's founded upon. It really is connected to the Old Testament passage of out of nothing. The ex nihilo, that the creation means, and it's always related to divine act creation, that we are a new creation, created out of nothing. What? What does that mean? Your spirit was dead in sin. It was dead. It was never alive until Christ in you, the Holy Spirit, regenerates and makes us alive unto Him. So we're alive now. We're a new creation, a new quality. Whereas we still have our old flesh, our old, name, our old man, so to speak, in this body, and we still fight the old man in a sense. And that's the next word, our passage. The old has passed away, according to verse 17. The old has passed away. What does old mean? It's where we get the word archaic from, or archaeology. You know, that means study of ancient things. The original part of us that was dead in sin and viewed life the old way, the before we were born from above, you know that way if, if you were saved a little, little uh, later in your life and you can remember, <clears throat> that the old man thought the old ways. That's the way I used to think before 1979. Uh, it was the old way that men think, the unsaved man would think. And view things. So the old has passed away. Literally it doesn't just mean before you were born from above. But it means everything in you all the way back to Adam. What you are in Adam has changed. It's new. The old. <clears throat> your old nature going back to Adam. Has now passed away. It says passed away. A word that passed away means to render void. It's disregarded now. It's neglected so to speak our old man has been rejected by us it's been rendered void it's disregarded by us now behold he says paul says the new has come again new quality new freshness a superior way of life he says has come and this the english passage doesn't really give it its full flavor it literally means it's where we got the word genealogy from or in, in a woman's uh, as a woman's doctor, gynecologist, they deliver babies, and so uh, it really means has come into being. So the new, the new man has come into being. It's been born. This is what we talk about when we say born again or born from above. He says the new has come into birth, come into existence now, whereas before we were dead. So if you've been born from above. This is what you know to be true. A different perspective. So if you reminisce for a minute, remember your view of the Bible when you first got saved, when you first believed in Jesus Christ? I do. Uh, my first Bible was the King James Version, Schofield, uh, Old Schofield 1909 edition. And I mean, I loved the scripture. I didn't know what the Bible was as a young, as growing up in my home. I was Catholic. I didn't know what the what it meant or what it was. What was in the Bible? My view of prayer changed when I was a child. I'd pray for you know a bicycle. Or I'd pray for myself, and like men do, and the you know like the race of Adam does. But I didn't think about God. Now I pray. I pray differently now. And, because He has, he is praying with me. The Holy Spirit prays for me and, and with me. My relationship to God has changed. I used to see God as a fiery man on a throne. But now, when I was first saved, I realized He's my Father. He's my Abba. He's our, our Patri, our Dad, in a, in a respectful way. Our Holy, Mighty Father. His Spirit. I never knew His Spirit. Now we know the Spirit of God. His Kingdom. And... um just was talking about the kingdom, it's, it's, and it's just to add on to that. Before, when we, before we were born from above, we lived in one kingdom. This is it. We didn't know. We couldn't see the kingdom like Jesus said. You can't see it you, unless you're born from above. Now we see the kingdom. Jesus said you cannot enter the kingdom unless you've been born above. Not just death, but now in and out of the kingdom we go. In prayer and in life while we still live. We live in two kingdoms now. We live in this kingdom because we're still the man that we were born, a woman or child, and yet we live in another kingdom, the kingdom of God, at the same time, waiting to fully live in God's kingdom alone. We have a different view of government, different views of money now, heaven, in short, a different view of yourself. All things have become new. It's a new year. And we pray God would revive us again of these things that we've learned. So I ask, is this you today? Can you say that you've been going from above? Can you say, yeah, everything you just said, I get it. I I see that. I, I have too. I understand. Or if what I just said to you, have you said to yourself, I don't know what he's talking about. What is he talking about? I'm religious. I like, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. If it doesn't make much sense to you what I just said then you're not born from above. And so what you want to do is talk to someone here who's in the church leadership or someone you know from our church that you believe is a Christian and ask them and say, you know, that's never happened to me, what he's talking about. Um, ask yourself, which is you today? But what about you as a Christian? You say, but I've failed so much. Uh, what happens that I've made so many mistakes and, Failed so many times. Well, I can tell you that it's, it happens to us as believers. We still we still have this old body. We still have the old nature that we do battle, that we have power over, that doesn't have dominion. But I think about my last 40 years as a Christian. I just went over 40 years as a believer uh, before a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving in 1979. And I look back at 40 years and I say, uh, wow, there's a lot of time I wasted. And a lot of things that I did were foolish, and it's very embarrassing. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of things we've done in our Christian life that I can, if I look at my part, I say, wow, I've really fallen short. But there's two parts to your Christian life, isn't there? There's your part which falls short, obviously, or can fall short. Praise God, we do try to live for him. But the second part is more important. It's God's part. It's what he's doing. When I look back at forty years I say, How much has he spared me from could have been worse? How much has he guarded my ways or I would have fallen further, right? And how he has still led me in his past into blessings and and uh things that I needed obviously to survive, but also even beyond what I what I need. His kindness and mercies are beyond are beyond measure. So just to leave you with this verse, if you've been born from above but you're discouraged today, uh, remember every morning is new, his mercy is new. But remember this verse, because it struck me too. He that began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. See what it says? It doesn't say you began a good work in you. It says he began a good work in you. If he began a good work, he's going to see it through. And that's the joy we have as the one who's been born from above.
2: Please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We are five days into the new year, and we are starting a new decade. I was informed by the youth group a couple weeks ago that 2010-2020 was the first full decade that all of them will fully remember. And I said, well, that's depressing because it's my third. So we are looking at new things in the scriptures this morning. And we are now looking at from Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, the new man, the one new man. So I'll start reading in chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I want to look first and just notice first that it is right for us to worship Christ. It is right to worship him for what he has given to us, for what he has done in our hearts as both Justin and Barry have talked about already, He has saved us. And this is what Paul is talking about at the beginning of this passage in Ephesians 2. And he continues on in verse 11 after going through the first 10 verses. And he says in verse 13, You who once were far off have been brought near. This is that new birth, that new creation. He says later in verse 16 that Christ has in His flesh reconciled us to God. And that is the first and most fundamental change, the most basic and most important reconciliation that has occurred in your life if you are a Christian. And that is what everything flows from. This one new man, this unity that he talks about in this passage, is a byproduct of what God has done in Christ in saving sinners. This is what has ushered us into the acceptance and the love of God. It has saved us. And that is something we ought to worship Christ for. Paul is speaking here specifically to the Jewish Gentile situation in the first century in the church. And this was a an incredibly dire situation before Christ came and changed it. The Jews had proximity to God. They had the covenants. They had hope. And the Gentiles had none of that. Right As Paul mentions here, he says in verse 12, they had no hope. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, and they were without God. Without God. If you have grown up in a Christian home, you have some proximity to the Lord. You have uh, the scriptures read, hopefully, in your home regularly. There is a closeness that is beneficial. The Gentiles grew up without that. And many of us possibly also grew up without that. But in Christ, that has all changed. He has brought us, as it says in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is a glorious thing to worship our Savior for what He has done. It is also glorious to remember that no one is so far off that they cannot be brought near. The blood of Christ is that strong, that powerful. No matter where you sit this morning, no matter how far you think you are, you can be brought near by the blood of Christ. And if you are a believer, you were very far off. I think I'm correct in assuming that most of us would classify ourselves as Gentiles here. We were very far off. But in Christ, we have been brought near and we can therefore worship our Savior for what what He has done what His blood has accomplished, and what His love has done for us. So now we look at how relationships change because of this re, the reconciliation that has come in Christ. And so we want to look at the primacy of Christ. When you are saved, Christ becomes the most primary affection of your heart. He, he becomes the one that you love. He alone is first. And your worth is now entirely bound up in his person. For, for the Jew and the Gentile, this was life-altering in the first century. Because they were two groups of people that lived in centuries of division and anger and hatred and hostilities, violence. You can look at the Middle East today and see that that is still happening. And it was the same back then. You think about... Uh, The Romans coming in, the Gentile Romans coming in and destroying the temple in 70 A.D. It was just a a culmination of the anger and the hostilities that those two groups had experienced for years. The temple wall, or the temple had a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the temple proper where the Jews could enter. There was a sign on it that said, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. There was a clear distinction and a chronic hatred that built up over the centuries because of it. The Gentiles were known as dogs. They were known as unclean. The Gentiles thought of the Jews as enemies of the human race. A people filled with a hostile disposition towards everybody. You can even see this in the New Testament when Paul confronts Peter, because Peter has pulled back and has ceased to eat with the Gentiles once a group of Jews showed up. And Peter is, is saved, but he feels that tension, he feels that distinction, he feels that division, and he has let the traditions and the the, the primary focus of the Jews cause Christ to become secondary at that moment in his mind. He has put those traditions above Christ and the union that Christ has brought. But in salvation, and this is why we're talking about the primacy of Christ in this context, in salvation, all of the traditions, all of the customs, all of your upbringing, no matter what race you are, what social status you have, all of that becomes less important than Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus did for these first century Jews and Gentiles. He broke down that dividing wall of hostility because he became more important than everything else that divided them. And so they now, for the first time, Jews and Gentiles could come together and agree and love one another. And this is the new man that Christ has created. This is a spiritually defined person. Somebody who has been born into a new relationship with God first and then with their fellow human beings second. It is a person who is all about Christ. And no other distinctions or differences ultimately define them. Christ does not change our race. Christ does not change our social status. He does not change the way we talk or some of the views we have. He certainly changes our primary views in many ways. But but we are still very much the same person after we are saved, except that we now care more about Christ than any of those other things that define us. We are now defined first and foremost by Him. And therefore, when a Jew in the first century considers Christ first and foremost and loves Him first and foremost... And then when a Gentile does the same, all of that past history, all of that current culture and preferences, and even all of their future hopes and desires, they become secondary and they can turn to one another and love one another and consider each other brothers and sisters together in the same family. And that also applies to us most certainly. In coming to Christ, every part of your history, every desire you have, every preference you have, every plan you have for the future should become a distant second to your desire for and your love for Christ. You may still have those preferences and desires, but they become second to Christ. I'm not saying we ignore differences between us and others that are of primary biblical importance. If you think about uh, an important topic of today, the the issue of abortion, right? we do not unify with somebody who is pro-abortion, we do not join with them and say that, well, since you claim to be a Christian and I claim to be a Christian, that we are unified. No, that is an issue of primary importance. Because that is an issue that is connected directly to Christ and what he says and what he does. And we put him above anything else. And so our unity is in Christ, as this passage says. Our unity is not for the sake of unity, but it is in Christ. And we are unified because we come together with Christ as our first and foremost love and focus. And so in Christ, we agree with other believers on issues of primary importance. And then there's those issues of secondary importance. And we might disagree on those. But we can still be unified because our our Lord and Savior is our primary focus. Because we are consumed by Christ. And, And we love in unity others that are likewise consumed by Christ. And that is one of the reasons that loving others, loving the the people in your pew, loving the people in this church is a test of your love for Christ. If you claim to love Christ, you will love the things that he loves. You will love the people that he loves. And you will love, therefore, his church. William Hendrickson says that the reason why there is so much strife in this world is that the contending parties have not found each other at Calvary. Only then, when sinners have reconciled to God through the cross, will they be truly reconciled to each other. So as we think to apply this, this short passage, as we look at it, the people that hate you, and the people that tempt hate in you, those people that, that get under your skin that you want to lash out at, those are fundamentally people in need of the gospel. At, at its root, the opposition we experience in this world Is coming from our love for Christ and their hatred of Him. Therefore, we need to recognize that the world's greatest need is to hear and obey in faith the gospel. We can and should fight evil in many forms. We we took the youth group, speaking of abortion, we took the youth group to pray outside Planned Parenthood for, for the month of October. And it is good to fight evil in many forms. But we must never stop sharing the Gospel because that is the fundamental problem. That is the fundamental division in this world. And remember that as you share the Gospel, nobody is too far off. Nobody is too far off. No matter how much they irritate, frustrate, or no matter how much you might wish harm on them in the sinful thoughts of your heart, you need to remember that if this person believed the Gospel, I would love them this person that might be really frustrated that might seem to be very far off, if they believed the Gospel, I would love them as a brother and as a sister. This can and should change the way that we respond to those that hate us. Second Timothy 2, starting in verse 24, has really helped me think correctly about this topic. It says there, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That is the people that oppose us. That is our hope and prayer as we preach the gospel to them. Secondly and lastly, this body's unity, this body right here, this church body, Our unity is in Christ. That is why we are unified. We can disagree about many things. We can vote differently. We can debate each other on topics. We can have wildly contrasting preferences and yet love one another genuinely with a unity in Christ that is rooted deep within our souls. A unity that is primary. And causes everything else that we might disagree about to become secondary. And allows us to get past and love each other even when we disagree. And even more so, that's what is expected of us as Christians. And so if that is not the case between you and someone else in this church family, there needs to be repentance and and forgiveness and a restoration of love and unity. Because that is what Christ has created in calling us to be his own. He has created one new man, as it says here in this passage. And so, if you're struggling with loving the church, learn more about Christ. Learn to love him more with greater sincerity, and then your love for his church will grow. This church, any church, that is unified around Christ should be the best place for the world to see the vast diversity of, consumed by deep unity in Christ. And so let us remember these things, and I think as a good summary, remember the two greatest commandments. Let us love first the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then let us love one another as we just as we love ourselves. Amen. New birth, new
3: creation. New man, new year, happy new year. I like to say happier new year because you may have had a happy last year. My hope would be that you have a happier new year. But, you know, praise God that we are happy people because the Bible says happy is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose transgressions are covered. There's no one on earth except the people of God that can really claim to be happy. Paul says, I can I count myself happy, O King. Now that word happy, of course, can be translated in either Hebrew or Greek to blessed. We're not Giddish about our happiness, but we are in, in profoundly affected in a way that we have a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. We are bubbling over with joy and excitement. So we have the new birth, the new creation, the new man... And then the last one is in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. In the King James Version, I'm going to be reading with you. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also in the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of what or what kind of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for New heavens
2: and a new earth,
3: wherein dwelleth righteousness. May the Lord bless the reading of His word. I have something to say to you. You know we sing the song "Amazing Grace," and I believe the last line says, "And when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise until we first until we first begun. Unless how's that go? Until we first begun." Anyway, when we've been there 10,000 years, where will we be in 10,000? You're wondering where you're going to be next year. You're wondering where you're going to be in five years. But we sing when we've been there 10,000 years. Where will that be? You might say, well, be heaven. Well, let's, let's pass that out a little bit this morning. First of all, let's understand that the earth on which we live right now is described in Romans chapter 8. In verse 22 it says that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. That's what's going on right now in the world. There is conflict. There are wars. There's hostilities. There's animosity. That's what fills this globe. Even between the animal world. Everything is in Chaos, in disorder. We see, to some degree, uh, we see some order, but in a general way, the Bible describes as a whole creation is groaning in travail. In other words, it's in a state of struggle, in turmoil. But what we're looking for is something far better. When we've been there 10,000 years, what is it going to be like? I'm sure a lot of you here are pet owners or pet lovers. And some of you have had pets that have died, right? Raise your hand if you had a pet that has died. Would you like to meet your pet again? Probably a lot of you sentimentally at least would say, Yes, I'd like to meet my pet again. And I've had some people who are so devout to their animal, one one Christian woman asked me if I would do a funeral for her cat. And I said, I'll do anything for you, but I will not do that for you. <laughs> and there's a question, will, will animals be resurrected? Well, let me, before I answer that question, give you a couple passages. We're not going to have time, obviously, to get into all of this. But Isaiah eleven six to 8 says, The wolf will, lay, will, will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. That would be a poisonous snake with the danger of being bitten and bitten to death. But this day is speaking about a day when there's going to be a consolation. That there's going to be a peace in all of the world and even in the animal kingdom. Isaiah sixty five twenty five. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Notice these animals. Some of these are, you could say, very peaceful animals. Others are very ferocious. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. In dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. We see there's going to be a harmony in the new heaven and the new earth. We don't see that now. That's why Peter says we look for a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Well, the first new heaven, the first earth and the first Heaven has been contaminated when sin entered into the world and death by sin. Then we saw the turmoil begin and it has continued to exist right through all of the existence of the heavens and the earth since that time till now. But a time is coming that we can look forward to. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. And that will be what we call the eternal state. Sometimes we talk about being in heaven forever. That's really not quite accurate. What will be forever will be the new heavens and the new earth. For instance, we think of hell. People will go to hell forever. That's not exactly accurate either. Because the Bible says that hell will be cast into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire will be the eternal Abode of the unconverted, the wicked, whereas the new heavens and the new earth will be the abode of the righteous. We, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness will dwell. So you could say that hell, duration-wise, is equal to heaven, duration-wise, and the lake of fire is equal, duration-wise, to the new heavens and the new earth. They're related, hell and the lake of fire. Heaven and the new heavens and the new earth are related to one another, but one spills over into the other. And that's what we're looking forward to. And in that new heavens and new earth, we have references, like in Isaiah, we get some pictures of what it's going to be like. And what it reminds us about is the Garden of Eden. What a peaceful environment. What a beautiful scene. What a paradise there was at one time in this world. And that was God's original intent. And since it's been spoiled by sin, God is going to wipe out all of the old and He's going to bring in all of the new. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so new that the way in which it will affect us is described in Revelation 21. Verse 4 says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Not from their cheeks, by the way. From their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Can you imagine that day? No death. No sorrow, no pain, no crying, no tears. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Now there seems to be in the description of the new heavens and the new earth, things that may sort of possibly correct a misunderstanding that we may have about heaven. Some have sort of classified heaven as like an eternal glorified worship service. Now, that's very appealing in lots of ways, and I would not complain about that. But the fact that animals are brought in, that the the condition of earth, the state that it will be in, are things that we can relate to. It's sort of like bringing us back to the Edenic state in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God communed with man. And in the book of Revelation 21, it says the tabernacle of God is with men. Imagine that. God Himself, like He walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve in the present, with all of the animals there in that future day, it says that God will tabernacle with men. Remember John chapter 1, and he tabernacled among us? Well, his tabernacling among us was only for 33 or 4 years. But in this final tabernacling among us, it will be in the eternal state, where God and men, the ultimate picture of reconciliation, of, of, of sinful, redeemed man with a holy God, now brought together in this happy communion. What a day that's going to be. We're looking forward to it. Peter says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now you might have a belief of a, of a millennial period where the Jews will be back in the land and the temple will be rebuilt and the sacrificial system will be re-inaugurated and there will be Jewish priests and so on and so forth. I don't know what your personal eschatology may be on those things, but I do want to say what emphasis the Bible puts on is that glorious, glorious new heavens and a new earth. But what is the world looking for? The poor world is looking for a utopic world. They're hoping for peace in the Middle East. They're hoping for a president that's going to satisfy all kinds of ideals that people may hold. The earth and the people of the world are looking for an earthly kingdom. But we, according to his promise, are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we're looking for, brothers and sisters. A happy new year? Yes, we want a happier new year. Maybe you've already got your resolutions on the table and you're working on your weight, you're working on maybe a better prayer life, you're working on maybe reading through the Bible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of that is very good. And it's something to look forward to and work towards. But look at brothers and sisters, the greatest thing that we can look forward to is what Peter says right here. In closing, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. All of it. Let's not lay up our treasures here upon earth because they're all going to be dissolved. And what kind of person should we be like because of this? We should be godly people. Our manner of life should be representative of the Lord Jesus. And we should be looking for and hasting. That is, we anxiously look for it to come to pass, the coming of the day of God. What a description that categorizes the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be the day of God, in contrast to the day of man as it exists right now. What a great and glorious that new day will be when it's the day of God, and we will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And getting back to a previous thought that I was trying to get across was, maybe it's not going to be one gigantic, eternal, glorified worship service, but there are going to be some, I don't want to use the word mundane things, but because we have described in the new heavens and the new earth, things that we can relate to in our humanity. And even in our perfect humanity, there are going to be things that we will be able in the future to be able to associate with, that will be similar to things that we associated here, but in that day it says, where righteousness will dwell. Hallelujah for that day. Brothers and sisters, let's look for that coming day and praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the new days that we are in, Lord, in 2020. Thank you, Lord, that we can look forward though, Lord, to the, as we sing the 10,000 years when we will be praising you, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So Lord, we look forward to that day. Help us, Lord, to live in the realities of this, knowing that the things that are here will be suddenly dissolved and the things that are eternal will come into play and will be before our eyes. And might you, Lord, be pleased to strive with somebody here this morning that has no confidence or hope that they will be in the new heavens and the new new earth, but rather they would be in the eternal lake of fire, separated from you, O God, separated from your people in undergoing the wrath of God for eternity. Lord, have mercy upon them. Open up their eyes and give them a vision of the cross of Calvary that they may come to saving faith. As we give you praise and worship this morning, Lord Jesus, in thy precious and worthy name we pray. Amen.